Hello, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the show, The Big Show, the most important and critically acclaimed podcast that is recorded in our car. And today we are in in the car, and it is raining. We're driving east. We're heading east. It's eastward bound. We're heading towards Illinois. And today we're uh, going to talk about an article we have just written. And the, this podcast should actually, assuming we get back in time, appear the same day that we record, which is kind of unusual. So... Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my co-author and somebody who's a lot more of an expert on the actual subject than I am and let my partner in no crime, (laughs) Spice, talk a little bit about children and the olden days and why we don't want to do that anymore. The article was stimulated. We were going for a drive. A few weeks ago, came across one of the old little town cemeteries. Out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Way more dead people than live people in that part of the country anymore. So old church, old graveyard, yeah, stopped to yeah, stop stretch to legs around, and, stretch and leg, look around a little around bit. And, and, uh, I was wandering through the graveyard and reading the tombstones. And three quarters of them were people under the age of five. Many of them, in fact, were just listed as baby or infant, because they hadn't yet named the child when the child expired. And it reminded me about the massive changes in infant mortality that have occurred since just 1860. Actually, in this part of the country, oh, it was probably the 1890s, when that most of those graves were 1890s-era graves. And they were still showing well more than half the deaths were people under the age of five. Which was, I mean, this was a, the most common thing ever back then. You don't think about children dying today. I mean, yes, it still does happen. You know, there's children with grave diseases, sudden infant death. It does happen. Uh, there are children who are born with birth defects, and it's tragic. But, you know, right now this is such a small percentage of the children who make it to a survivable age in the womb from there until uh, they reach adulthood is a very, very, very small percentage today. But less than 5% worldwide. And that's including a lot of the third world countries. It's nowhere near that here in the, in the United States. I believe it's about 1%. Yeah, about that. Um, I have to look at the stats exactly, but it's about 1%. As late as 1800. Which is when statistics for this kind of stuff was really starting to actually be taken. Before that, we don't really know because they weren't doing it. They weren't doing the statistics on them. But as late as 1800 worldwide, 43% of the children who were born did not survive until the age of five. Yeah, I think that was actually an 18th. What was the 1800s? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 43%. 43%. There's a lot of nostalgia for the good old days, but that wasn't one of the good parts. And that's one of the parts we don't want to go back to if we are thrown out of our materially comfortable third world lifestyles here. First world does. Uh, for, yeah. 
Now, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about this first world, second world, and third world. This is a new thing, okay? This first world, third world thing. You know, back in 1840, there was no, it wasn't first world, third world. That made no difference when it came to immortality. Because uh, whether you're in Europe or whether you're in the United States or whether you're in Africa, the death rates were very similar. They were worse in cities than in rural areas, and that's about what you had. That's Yeah, that's about it. It didn't really matter whether it was uh, the Black Hole of Calcutta versus London's East End versus Boston. Didn't really matter. But that has changed because we have first world hygiene, first world clean water, first world... Uh, medical, we have first world vaccinations, and then they have the second world, which is, you know, they're not not as developed, but they're still pretty good. And then you have the third world places, and some of those places are really bad. Kiberia, you know, in South Africa, you know, world's largest slum. You've got uh, places, I mean, you just name them. I can name the countries, and you go, oh, you know. Right now, Venezuela, with their what's going on there? Ooh, Paraguay is having issues. Monrovia, you want to talk about messed up Monrovia, Chad? You know. And some of these places, like Venezuela, would have been considered first world countries or at least second world five years ago, maybe ten. I haven't been watching their politics, honestly, but so it can recur. So we wanted to talk about what the biggest reasons were for that child mortality. Because we don't have to go back there if we lose this really high-level medical care. It doesn't take the highest level of medical care to get the really steep drop-off in infant mortality. So if we're careful about how we do things, we can keep that awful tragedy of infant mortality low even as we lose a lot of the highest-level services. It is undeniable what the single biggest improvement was in child and infant mortality, and that was hygiene. When hygienic practices became widespread, that's when the death rates took a nosedive. Now, this isn't only in, like, childhood uh, diseases. This is in the general population as well. One thing you really, 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 really see this in is if you look at um, armies, and you compare the battlefield deaths versus the deaths off the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, today, people in the U.S. Army aren't dying of dysentery. But in the Civil War, most of the people who died in the Civil War who were soldiers didn't were not killed or wounded on the battlefield and died from their wounds. Most of them died of things like dysentery. Cholera, Yellow fever. Yellow fever. Malaria. These types of things. Now, yellow fever isn't necessarily a hygiene thing, but dysentery certainly Oh, it was absolutely a hygiene thing. I know how they spread it. Oh, okay then. (laughs) The doctors would go around, oh, somebody in here's got yellow fever. Hey, look, I can go examine these guys and tell which ones are going to get yellow fever. So he goes to the guy with yellow fever, and he, he pulls down his tongue, and he shows his tongue to his students and says, see... This guy's got the characteristic signs of yellow fever. You see this and this and this. And then he goes to the next guy who doesn't have yellow fever, opens his mouth, pushes down his tongue with his thumbs, and says, see here? See how you're just beginning to see these really subtle changes on the back of this tongue? This guy's going to develop yellow fever in about four days. 
And then he goes to the next guy and handles his tongue. Oh, look, he's going to develop yellow fever in about four days, too. And he was right. It's a miracle. What's the fact that he wasn't flipping washing his hands between pigs? He was handling the spit of somebody with a yellow fever and rubbing it on the tongues of the next five guys in line. That could have had something to do with it, which is why I say it was a hygiene issue. At least in part. Yeah, that was a, a particular documented case. But these incredibly overworked medical people will, were trying to care for the wounded and the sick in the same wards at the same time. And, uh, and you know, so much in it was the, the, the instruments were not even being washed off between patients. Uh, they all had wooden handles on them. Which don't which, sterilize well at all. Yeah, which, and they didn't really sterilize it anyway. I mean, so the, the instruments would carry all these bugs from person to person, bacterias and, and you name it, viruses. Yeah. yeah. And there was no sterilization. Uh, the, the dressings weren't sterilized. The, you know, this is all a hygiene thing. We think of hygiene as like, oh, you're brushing your teeth, combing your hair, taking a shower. But there's a lot more to it than that. And a perspirant isn't really hygiene. That's making you more pleasant to other human beings. It's not a cleanliness issue. It's a social issue. Although Washing your a, hands is hygiene. We're not opposed to you using... You know, yeah, feel free, guys. Feel free. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But I wanted to be clear what we were talking about here. The reason the death rates concentrated in the under five population is because that some proportion of people will survive most of these diseases. For some diseases, it's a very tiny proportion. For some diseases, it's a relatively large proportion. But almost any of these diseases, at least some people who get them survive, and their immune systems are thereby have a bunch of memory cells that know how to attack that germ, and they're unlikely to die of it later in life. So if you don't die of the thing the first time you get it, you're unlikely to die the second, third, fourth, fifth, or 17th time you're exposed to it. Because you have the tools in your body to fight it. Which seems like a good place to bring up the vaccination. Okay, now, we're gonna, I'm going to put in the caveat because this is, this is our caveat. We understand, we, don't, we do not do politics on 3BY. We just don't. We don't do it. We don't allow it. And we have a comment section where you're more than welcome to, to leave any non-political comment that you like. And we generally approve almost all of them, as long as they're not, well, trying to sell something. Yeah. And as long as they're not political. And somehow, through a very bizarre series of events, vaccines have become political. And I just, it, my mind is a little blown by this whole thing. I understand what happened. I understand a lot about the situation. But here's the bottom line. I don't care about any of that stuff. To us, her and me, we care about talking about scientific things, which a vaccine and its effect on the human body is a scientific thing. We talk about them in scientific terms, and we try to base this on evidence that is scientifically gathered, that is reproducible, and that has been published in legitimate, long-term, non-vanity journals. Okay, so, you know, our caveat is, yes, we will be glad to discuss vaccinations with you. 
but from a scientific perspective. But from a scientific point of view, and Only. if you want to bring you this, bring anti-vaxxing, bring the journals where the documentation is with you. Because if we're not doing that, then we're not having a conversation about science. We're talking about somebody's opinion, and we're not going to do that. I'm pretty firm on this because I get really tired of of these. Well, somebody said somebody said things. No, that's not. We're not somebody said somebody said thing. We're not doing that. So now we'll go right ahead. The reason I wanted to bring it in now is to point out because that is what vaccines do. They present the signature proteins of the microbe in a way that alerts the immune system and gets the immune system to make a bunch of these memory cells so that those memory cells will be sitting around in the body long term. And upon re-exposure, you get a really strong, vigorous immune response that prevents you from getting ill. So uh, when I was a kid and they were giving vaccinations, uh, when you gave one of them, I forget, uh, it was one of the poxes. I forget which one of the poxes. They'd give uh, one of the uh, vaccinations, and if you didn't develop any kind of mark at the site of the injection, it was just eliminated with no sign at all. At first, they'd think, well, maybe it didn't take, and they'd try again in case you just had a bad immune system week when they gave the immunization. But if you didn't show any reaction twice in a row, they concluded you had already survived a previous exposure to the thing and were already protected and said, okay, you don't need this one. At some time earlier in your life, you managed to survive an exposure to this germ. So it is about getting exposed to the germ in a way that won't kill you and developing memory cells to it. Now. One thing about vaccinations that a lot of people don't really think, but those of us who, as children, went to, well, I'll try to figure out a good way of putting this. I, as a child, was a military brat, which meant, for us, East Asia. And I got more vaccines for stuff that, you know, no, American kids just will never get vaccines for. I got vaccines out my ears, literally. I mean, you name it. I got the normal stuff, then I got the yellow fever, the cholera, the typhus, typhoid—you name it. I got it. And of course, the as a caveat, the best part of all of those is they were not nearly as buffered as they are today, so they were a lot harder on my poor little system, and they also were. Uh, not nearly as combined as they are today. Now you can get a, a vaccine that has like five different things in it. Not then. We got a shot at a time. We used to, I used to get four shots a week for months. Gave him quite a needle phobia. We did, and I was I was like a, I was a tiker. I was like five, and it took me years to get over that phobia of needles. And of course, the needles they were using there were a lot bigger. You know, the, the, if you look at a shot needle from the '60s, it's just it's not like what they use today. Yeah, it's not a twenty-seven anymore. No. Or then. No. No, it's like one of these, oh, big, huge things. 15 or something. They let me actually keep a few of the of the uh, shot, ne- the, the what do you call them, syringes? Yeah. Not the ones that they had my stuff in, obviously. They just gave me new ones because uh, I was a kid and I played with them. And some of those things are humongous. But anyway, you go right ahead. So that's what the vaccinations are for. And... In the absence of antitoxins to things like tetanus, they are the only defense. Tetanus bacillus is a a nice example because it lives in the soil practically everywhere, which means it can get into wounds of practically anyone. And 
heck, I was reading a story last month about a, a kid in Canada who almost died just from a little cut on his scalp. He hadn't been vaccinated for it, and his mom washed the wound, which helps, but apparently didn't get out quite enough because it's impossible to wash out every bacterium, folks. It just is not happening. Sorry. And the kid uh, ended up contracting tetanus and was already developed enough that they very, very nearly lost him anyway, even giving him the antitoxin. An antitoxin is not a thing you're going to have in a low medicine situation. Tell you, I mean, I've I mean, never heard of any prepper putting an, uh, tetanus antitoxin in their preps. It requires freezing. Yeah. And, and it's a large quantity thing, and, and you have to take and, a whole bunch of it. I could make antitoxin probably if you gave me a nice strain of tetanus bacillus, a couple of rabbits, a good lab in two months, I could make some. And once I had it, it would stay good for about 18 hours. Before it went bad without refrigeration. So, hard, not hard really an pass answer. on that. And the bunnies, yeah. The bunnies would not be significantly hurt by the procedure, but still. <laughs> They're just a little vaccine producers. But then you couldn't eat them. You're right. I wouldn't want to eat them after that. But it's probably... So the, what else probably is there to the do with happy. a bunny if you're not going to eat it? <laughs> it's a, it's a bunny's only job in life is to get eaten. Well, in this case, make antitoxin. <laughs> but anyway... My point is that the only known remedy to not dying once you get tetanus would no longer be there in a low medicine situation. So vaccines are not the most important. They're even a fairly distant second to the most important. But it seemed like a nice time to bring them in because that's what they do is they train your immune system to be able to defend. And it is a long lasting defense. Oh. Absolutely, the best defense is quite clear. It's the hygiene thing, which we started to talk about there. Right. And the most of the deaths of the people under five, the single biggest killer is diarrheal diseases. And the biggest killer among the diarrheal diseases, the biggest mode of transmission, is contaminated water. Water contaminated with human feces, usually, which is actually quite easy to get. Which is why, if you look at the article attached to this story... I've got a paragraph in here where I just put in a whole bunch of links because this is why we at 3BY spend so much time talking about the less appealing aspects of prepping, like how do you build a latrine? How do you make your com a composting toilet that is safe and reasonably pleasant to use? How do you build a hand wash washing station that you can put anywhere using minimal water where it's easy to use and easy to decontaminate your hands so people actually do it reliably. That's the tippy tap. And how do you purify your water? Because even if you're doing a great job, the people upstream of you may not be doing a great job. Or the fact that you may be doing a great job, and if you live in a suburb, what are all your neighbors doing? That's a big deal. Yeah, I expect cities, if public sewer systems failed or water systems failed. And which, it doesn't even have to be for that long of a time. Yeah, Uh Public hygiene would go, well, right into the street, shall we say. <laughs> and disease transmission would start to follow very quickly thereafter because there's a lot of people walking around with things like hepatitis right now. The more obscure diseases would take longer to show up because you have to have a carrier. But there's already plenty of people wandering around with hepatitis, and hepatitis A would start spreading pretty much immediately, would be my guess. I am not a physician. I am somebody who uh, studies pathophysiology for a living. 
All right. Well, we're going to bottom line this and say, please read the article. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you the next time. Wash your hands. Wash your hands and your kids' hands.